inspired by intellectual intrigue? Examine great works by masters such as Aristotle, Einstein, Mozart, and Morrison. Offering over 40 topics, online or in person, St. John's College's summer classic seminars featured timeless ideas driven by lively, small group discussion and top-rated faculty. Add your voice to the conversation. Seminars fill fast. Visit sjc.edu classics. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Although it's still largely conceptual at this point, our return to a world where we can safely mingle with colleagues, friends, and strangers is in sight. Yet it's obvious that this won't be a smooth, simple transition back to normal, as if we were coming home after a long vacation. According to a recent poll, 62% of Americans believe that the pandemic has meaningfully damaged their mental health. How we deal or don't deal with the psychological aftershocks will define the decades ahead, not just for those who are alive now, but for future generations. In the April issue, David Cortava writes about the potentially damaging side effects of one method of bolstering mental health and overall wellness, meditation. An increasing number of studies show that the practice can cause serious psychological problems for people who have no previous history of mental health issues, a reality that's far removed from its popular conception as a panacea for the ills of modern life. I spoke with Cortava about the origins of Buddhist meditation, which forms the basis of modern Western meditation practices, and how we should not entirely dismiss meditation but view it as a form of medication that works for some. Your story is about the negative effects of meditation. And those run the gamut from depression to dissociating to suicidal ideation. Also, some people don't sleep as well as they actually think they sleep. There's emerging science that suggests that these problems actually may be more common than they're portrayed because meditation evangelists uh, portrayed as like outliers. So what are some warning signs meditators should know about? Well, I, I, I just want to echo what you just said, because I think that really is the heart of this story. Um, meditation has been presented in many different context in the West as a kind of panacea, um, the Vipassana center that Megan, the the main subject of the story, attended. Uh, they called it a universal remedy for universal ills. Mm -hmm. Ariana Huffington, in her 2014 self-help book, Thrive, said the list of all the conditions that these practices impact for the better, depression, anxiety, heart disease, memory, aging, creativity, sound like a label on snake oil from the 19th century, except this cure-all is real and there are no toxic side effects. And I think that really what I'm trying to do in this article is just push back on that hype a little bit and really stress the importance of individual differences. Mm -hmm. uh, our scientific findings are based on averages and... So if you and I are in a 
meditation study and I have an anxiety attack and you know, whatever psychiatric condition you might have, the symptoms are exacerbated. But more than half of the other participants, you know, did well um, relative to a control group. The um, kind of buzzy headlines the next day and listicles are going to say meditation does this, that, that, and the other. And the outliers who didn't benefit are are not going to really be a part of that story. Mm-hmm. You know, Willoughby Britton, uh, who is this kind of contrarian researcher at Brown University, uh, who I write about in the piece, she says, all types of meditation benefit some people some of the time. And I think the corollary of that is all types of meditation probably harm some people some of the time, especially some of these deep bend deconstructive practices aimed at unraveling one's ordinary habitual sense of self in the world. And I don't mean to imply or argue that there are no benefits to meditation, but there is, among other issues, a lacuna in the research. Uh, Most studies don't monitor for adverse reactions. So we're really in the early days of understanding the spectrum, the range of different experiences that might arise in the course of a meditation practice. And uh, there are many unanswered questions. Yeah. um, Again, as you say, it's everywhere. You know, it helps with productivity, supposedly. It helps with all of the ridiculous list of things Aria Huffington said that it helps with. And the assumption is of a certain type of neurotypical person, right? Mm -hmm. This ultra-rational person who doesn't make emotional decisions, who is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a patriarchal idea of what a person is like this inherently, uh, the normal person. And quite frankly, there's no acknowledgement of the spectrum of ways people perceive the world, react to the world, or, you know, have problems that range from things that can be managed to things that really upend your life. Mm-hmm. in a way that's permanent and it's very difficult to get back to the way it was before say uh, a psychotic break so i was curious about that assumption and how it fits into uh this supposedly deconstructing the west <laughs> idea of <laughs> meditation and mindfulness and that oh yeah you know if we just sort of focus on the breath and we kind of get out of our heads. You don't really need medicine, even though this, the underlying assumption is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what you said really gets at this, this epistemological clash, this, this um, clash of different interpretive frameworks for appraising a challenge that might arise in the course of a meditation practice. In some schools, a, a difficult, even a really pronounced difficulty might be interpreted as just a stage along the path toward enlightenment and a meditator would be encouraged to lean into the distress um, observe it as you know just among the contents of consciousness and to work through that difficult material and something like equanimity if not nirvana awaits you on the other end and that might work for some folks but you know, someone else might bring a, a kind of Western biomedicine, psychological, psychiatric frame to the same 
issue and recognize a mental health crisis as a mental health crisis. And, you know, rather than necessarily instructing the meditator to lean into their distress, to pull back and seek help. In Megan's case, she had what I think most of us would consider a conspicuous mental health mm-hmm. crisis uh, a little more than halfway through this retreat. And she even told her instructor, I feel like I'm going crazy. And she was having trouble sitting up. Um, she was extremely agitated. She was, uh, she had racing thoughts and was not making any sense. And the instruction for the next 60 plus hours was to close your eyes, go back to meditating. And this seemed to just aggravate her symptoms until she reached this breaking point and had to be hospitalized. Right. Yeah, the one size fits all approach can be really devastating in a situation like that. Why do so many communities and teachers downplay the risks? You know, I I don't know the answer to that question. There, I mean, like I said, in a number of um, traditions, these difficulties are kind of, you know, an open secret, uh, not even a secret. They're, they're just a part of the path. The Theravada tradition from which Goenka's system derives, um, that's based on a fifth century text called the Path of Purification. And if you read that document, you'll find that it delineates certain stages along the path, like terror and dissolution. And this, this is, you know, it's some some folks would say that those are normal stages along the path, and in other traditions, um, other side effects arise, and uh, they might be considered abnormal, and and the, you would seek the help of a of a local traditional healer. So there is this history in Buddhism of meditation related meditation precipitated difficulties, and somehow when these practices migrated out of the monasteries and the hermitages and caves and made their way to the West, all of that was stripped away and we're just left with a kind of a kind of stress ball, yeah. a kind of simple technique that uh, is used to uh, alleviate uh, anxiety and and, and distress and, and is going to make you more productive and better in bed. And the whole, that, that whole idea, I think, needs to be re-examined, especially in light of all the new research coming out about adverse effects. There's not a whole lot, but there does appear to be an emerging consensus that adverse reactions are real. Mm-hmm. And frankly, this shouldn't even surprise us. I mean, there are contraindications for peanut butter. There are contraindications for exercise. There are contraindications for baby aspirin. Most of us will take a baby aspirin. It'll, you know, maybe slightly lower our risk of a heart attack and someone else might take one and it'll cause gastrointestinal bleeding and a stroke. Mm -hmm. So that different people will respond differently to different types of practice at different dosages is, I think, obvious. And now it's just a matter of 
coming up with more targeted, better controlled studies to really unpack the range of ways in which people might respond to different types of meditation practice. Right. I mean, I think the study you cite in your piece where people reported better sleep, but they were actually not sleeping better. <laughs> you know, the the just like yeah. <laughs> how you feel and what is actually going on isn't always connected. And you also cite the religious studies scholar David McMahon, who points out how so many of these contemplative practices were designed for lives of radical renunciation. McMahon has also written about the formation of Western Buddhism, which he calls like a Buddhist modernism, that is often mm. presents itself as undiluted Eastern wisdom, despite having intentionally incorporated aspects of Western philosophy, ethics, and science. Do you see any connection between McMahon's work and these questions about safety? Uh, yes. So I'll, I'll take both of those points in turn. So the sleep study, I think, is is really fascinating. It's um, it, it's the study that got Willoughby Britton to stop being an evangelist for meditation and start looking at it more critically. Uh, basically, she found that, uh, and again, this is one study, but in this study, she found that the, her her sample of meditators were all reporting that they were sleeping better as they adopted a meditation practice. But she was one of the first researchers to actually bring them into the lab and measure their brain waves, eye movements, muscle tension. And what she what she found was that a number of the meditators were actually sleeping worse. And the more that they practiced, the worse their sleep became. Basically, anyone practicing less than 30 minutes a day appeared to be benefiting, and anyone practicing in excess of 30 minutes were, was actually seeing a diminishment in sleep quality. And that's really what set her on this path to see you know, what other preconceptions we have about meditation that might be biasing subjects' self-reports, and, and that led to the Varieties of Contemplative Experience project that I write about. Uh, and and David McMahon is uh, yeah he's just a really uh, fascinating scholar who's spent his career kind of immersed in ancient Buddhist texts, and this was completely new to me because I too was uh, you know before I started this research really had this idea that you know there was something really therapeutic about meditation and and this is a practice that buddhists in the east have been practicing a long time and we really stand to benefit from it and some of that is true but the narrative is much more complex and the the very uh, earliest meditators uh, in the buddhist tradition these were not people who sought to be mindful so as to savor the beauty of nature or to be a more present, thoughtful spouse. These were monastics. These were monks and nuns who had renounced all possession, all hope of attaining any kind of social position uh, in society. They abandoned their families. They gave it all up in the hope of transcending this world and its cycles of rebirth and to awaken in nirvana, uh, a kind of state of equanimity beyond space and time. 
Um, and there's also a lot of, you know, religious hocus pocus that attends Buddhism as with any religion. Uh, you know, they, th- these monks and nuns did not wish to be reincarnated as mountain goats or hungry spirits in the hell realm underground. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the Pali suttas, which are the earliest Buddhist texts, there the Buddha discusses meditation almost exclusively with, with individuals who are prepared to reject all earthly belongings uh, in the hope of attaining nirvana. This was not something that ordinary lay Buddhists did. Uh, it would be presumptuous for someone who was not, uh, not, not even only a monastic, but a select monastic um, to practice. Um, so that history is very interesting in and of itself. And I think anyone who's adopting a serious meditation practice today in the West is probably not familiar with that history or with the range of uh, difficulties that might arise in the course of a intensive, serious meditation practice. Right. Um, the the practices that initiated and po- possibly deepened Megan Vogt's break were in the Vipassana tradition, where the practice often involves concentrating exclusively on the breath or some kind of other object. Uh, again, it seems you know very much in the tradition that you were just describing. Most of your article seems to focus on people who were doing that kind of concentrative practice when they started having problems. So not to sort of malign an entire uh, school of thought, but does Vipassana have, does it carry special risk as compared with traditions where there's less of an emphasis on single pointed focusing? So Vipassana... uh... You know, on these Goenka retreats, these are normally 10-day silent retreats. You know, you're instructed not to make so much as eye contact with other practitioners. Um, You're spending a lot of time silent with your eyes closed. You start out with three days of focusing on your breath before moving on to focusing on body sensations and sights and sounds, um, and then even kind of more deconstructive practices like like just observing the your thoughts themselves and and your feelings as among the contents of consciousness. And once you go out there in the kind of deep end, uh, this can be quite destabilizing for people. Goenka himself, says, uh, you know, the body starts revolting, I don't like it. The mind starts revolting, I don't like it. You must go to the source of your misery. And so for one person, leaning into their anxiety, observing it as a pattern of energy in the body can be very helpful. It can desensitize them to that anxiety. And for someone else, it may exacerbate it. One meditator who was hospitalized after a Goenka retreat um, told me that their instructor told them to use the anxiety itself as the object of focus. And they said it was mm-hmm. like putting a microphone to a speaker. And Oof. it just got worse and worse and worse until they were in you know, full panic and then into psychosis. And I think there is this kind of valorization of difficulty in Vipassana and 
in some other tradition, there's this idea that you have to pass through a kind of an uncanny valley where things get worse before they get better. And so a lot of meditators who experience these difficulties, rather than pulling back, they are told that this is a sign of progress and to just work through it. And that could be, like I said, helpful for some and um, actually very distressing and destabilizing for others. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, in the, in the varieties of contemplative experience study uh, that Willoughby Britton and her colleagues did, they found that, you know, a range of, of experiences that, that people um, had uh, that included anxiety and panic, traumatic flashbacks, visual and auditory hallucinations, loss of conceptual meaning structures, non-referential fear, affective flattening, involuntary movements, distressing changes in feelings of self. And, you know, some of the individuals in that sample were themselves teachers. They had 10,000 plus hours of practice. Some were fairly new to meditation and were practicing not on retreat, but, you know, at, at home less than an hour a day. So it's hard to say exactly who is vulnerable at what dosage doing what practice. It seems like any generalization you're going to make, you're going to find exceptions. And they did find people who were having pretty substantial challenges uh, with minimal practice and people who had relatively minor challenges at you know, larger doses. I think, like Willoughby says, the safest thing we can say right now is all practices benefit some people some of the time, and, and the corollary of that is all types of practice might be detrimental to some people some of the time. And in the year 2021, right now, we're all kind of guinea pigs mm -hmm. uh, on these retreats and using these apps. And I really think it's going to be another generation of research or so of better research, more targeted, better controlled research before we can say conclusively or not conclusively because science is constantly shifting and evolving. But well, I mean, science is, you know, talking about change shifting around all the time. I mean, come on, that's full of biases too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. But you, obviously you can't. Can <laughs> yeah, but I I just think it's it's going to be some time before we can answer questions like who is vulnerable, what types of practices are more dangerous than others. I can point to this study or that study, but they're so preliminary and tentative that um, I, th I I would date myself within within a year. Oh yeah, I mean it's also just the field of psychology itself is really relatively new, and there is just a lack of understanding. It's and I feel like a lot of the times it's exacerbated by um, the social stigma of mental illness, mm -hmm. and also the fact that we don't have uh, universal health care in this country. Where even if someone is really mm -hmm. suffering, they almost certainly won't be able to see someone who could help right away. There are so many layers of things quite serious working against certitude in this. But there's a question of desire. Uh, because, you know, the the monks and the nuns who originated these practices, they wanted to completely get rid of all this, all earthly desire and, 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 you know, transcend to this, to nirvana. 
And that's why they isolated themselves, too, and issued marriage and stuff like that. Um, but Americans who are drawn to these practices wouldn't say that they want to stop experiencing desire, that that's not what they're moving toward. So why do these practices appeal to so many? Is it because that implicit goal is so well hidden or does it appeal to us in some deeper sense? Or is it just like America is like well, a death cult and this is what we've all been trained <laughs> our whole lives to work toward? <laughs> I I mean, I think there's so many there's so many facets of this. Um I do I do think there is a kind of vacuum in our culture um with respect to you know meaning and identity and you know for a long time the principle means by which we came to form an identity revolved around religion you know we were members to this or that sect or tribe and we're you know increasingly a secular society and there is i think in the in Buddhism and in kind of Eastern traditions and in meditation and mindfulness, uh, it's it, it's advertising spirituality, a kind of spirituality to us that we can uh, that we can stomach, and that might be a part of it. But I also think you know we have uh, you know a lot of folks are anxious, a lot of folks are depressed, a lot of folks are experiencing difficulties, and there is some support to be found in mainstream psychiatry and in psychopharmacology but not everyone benefits from that and there is still a stigma some people won't even seek out that kind of more tested uh, support and so this the, the the this kind of alternative medicine in the form of different kinds of meditation uh, is appealing. That's my best guess right now. <laughs> sure, I think that's a salient point that's simple and very easy to overlook when thinking about this stuff. And it's <laughs> it's strange to think there are mindfulness apps that only run on these twitchy and anxiety producing expensive devices that's going completely against the uh, underlying philosophy or the original intent of these practices to separate yourself from desire and to um, not exist in the shitty world that we live in, you know, and try to hope for a better world. And as it, I mean, I guess it's a, it's getting the word out there. And speaking of getting the word out, I know, amazing transition. Have you been tracking the reaction to this article in Buddhist and meditation circles? Because uh, it, it would be it would it would just be interesting to know how the Dhamma Pubananda and the larger Goenka community have received the article. You know, I have heard from a number of folks. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. I think there is a sense among um, serious meditation practitioners and instructors that this is a discussion we should all be having. How do we make these retreats safer? How do we point meditators to resources? How do we ensure the instructors know when to recognize difficulties that might require medical intervention and not just more meditation instruction? 
there are so many unanswered questions and and this is exactly the kind of conversation that I hope this article might spark uh, among people in the so-called mindfulness movement. There's also been a little bit of a backlash. I mean, not anything serious, but I've gotten a few prickly <laughs> emails from meditators who uh, appear to be upset by, by the way I've characterized their work. And they seem to be you know, completely blind to the possibility that meditation itself might be problematic for even healthy individuals. There is this tendency whenever difficulties arise to blame the meditator. Mm -hmm. You know, people will say, you know, of course it happened to Megan or, or this or that person. You know, it only happens to people who, who have some kind of psychiatric or trauma history or the, or the person was practicing too intensely, or they Oof. were practicing under improper supervision. And it's not that these things don't happen right. uh, or, or aren't important variables in many cases, but I think especially what the varieties of contemplative experience study found was that there were exceptions to all of these. 60% uh, of the sample were themselves teachers. So they were you know, these were people who were practicing under optimal conditions, mm -hmm. had as much training as you're ever going to get in, in this practice, and still had difficulties. And then there were people who were just starting out and had difficulties and did not have any psychiatric history. And I, you know, I've been talking a lot about Willoughby Britton's work, but there are 50 plus published reports documenting meditation related difficulties at this point. One of the largest was published in this Scandinavian journal that I cite last August. And that was a systematic review of adverse events and meditation practices and meditation-based therapies. And they found that 65% of the studies included in the review found adverse effects, the most common of which were anxiety, depression, and cognitive impairment. And if I can just quote the author's really quick. They wrote, we found that the occurrence of adverse effects during or after meditation is not uncommon and may occur in individuals with no previous history of mental health problems. I think that, you know, even if meditation had a had the potential to destabilize people with psychiatric disorders, that in itself is newsworthy. I mean, I've been diagnosed with OCD. Like, should I be meditating? Should I not be meditating? What sort of practice might or might not benefit me, what dosage might or might not benefit me. Those are important questions mm -hmm. to which I don't have the answers. There's really no way for me to uh, engage in a meditation practice with informed consent, given the state of the research. Mm -hmm. There needs to be more work. But, you know, I think the on Britain's view uh, and on the view of um, a number of other researchers I've spoken to, some of these, especially deep end practices, can be destabilizing, even for people without any kind of psychiatric or trauma history. And that too, I don't think should surprise us. I mean, you could you could induce psychosis in healthy subjects through drugs, through prolonged isolation or confinement. Yeah, the government did a bunch of studies on this in the fifties and sixties called MK Ultra. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry if you just associate, you blanket associate that with uh, conspiracy theories, but 
what remains of the experiments is just it's very clear you can tear someone down permanently change the course of their life and their psyche so the idea that it's somehow on the person or that they're somehow prone to it is just it's not true there's just a limited understanding of psychology and how our brains work because they're really complicated yeah. and that's fine yeah i mean if if you're depriving the brain of normal inputs through sensory or social deprivation for long stretches of time you know is it any surprise that some percentage of people who undergo that are going to experience challenges right challenges that might be significant enough to warrant medical intervention right i i think this this piece maybe the framing is um, a little contrarian, but really nothing that Britain is saying is all that surprising when you just think about it a little longer. Right. Yeah. And in, you know, when researching this story, are there things that meditators can do to kind of keep themselves safe while also remaining open to a transformative experience? Well, I want to be careful not to do what I, in effect, am accusing these meditation structures of doing. Okay. Okay. So actually, let me ask a different question. Um, so, In other words, I'm not qualified to dispense any kind of advice, uh, <laughs> but I'm happy to speak about other people's findings. Oh, you have to do uh, six sun salutations every morning, <laughs> headstand for 10 minutes. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, if someone is listening to this, uh, Someone, if someone listening to this is experiencing any of these negative side effects or has a loved one who is experiencing them or even somebody who just had uh, a change in their mental health that might be linked to meditation practice, again, might be, uh, what sort of resources are there out there? I think one of the best resources out there right now is Cheetah House, which is Willoughby Britain's um, nonprofit based out of Brown University, mm -hmm. and they provide resources to meditators in distress. And they also have a support group that meets online. And I've spoken with you know a, a dozen or more of uh, participants to that, and it, it sounds like a lot of them are getting um, a good deal of benefit from that. So, yeah, I mean, I would. You know, if, if I can point the way to resources, that's that's what I would point to is um, that's probably a good first stop is is Cheetah House. Right. Nothing prescriptive. Right. Very important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, for ethical and legal reasons. Mm -hmm. So Willoughby Britain talks about this idea of the benefits from certain meditation practices having a kind of inverted U-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, if you want to be calmer because you're a bit agitated or uh, nervous or anxious, and you you're meditating regularly, you know, thirty minutes a day or, or less, and it seems to be working, and so you 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 think to yourself, you know, if thirty minutes a day is working, maybe I should do two hours a day or more, and you basically overtrain and move past the point beyond which uh, a certain amount of calm is optimal 
and kind of tip over into a, a state that you hadn't anticipated. And this actually had happened with me. I was at some point meditating for several hours a day and I was feeling very calm and I thought it was working. And, uh, you know, my wife and a couple of friends and colleagues would ask me if I was okay. And I, I didn't quite grasp what they were getting at because I thought I was feeling well. Mm-hmm. And it struck me finally that I was not only not experiencing a lot of negative emotions, but I wasn't experiencing a lot of positive emotions either. I had so um, reduced the activity of my amygdala through meditation that I developed a kind of flattened affect. Yes, which is sometimes a a symptom of schizophrenia. Not necessarily, but can be. Or other mental illnesses, yeah. Yeah, so like the, the I think the bulk of the problems that arise with moderate amounts of meditation fall into this category of dysregulated arousal. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, um, an individual might get more anxious, more panicky, more agitated, uh, develop insomnia, have traumatic re-experiencing flashbacks, that sort of thing. And on the other end of that spectrum is a kind of hypoarousal where you've diminished emotional reactivity to such an extent that it's actually, it's no longer helpful. It's, you know, you, you start dissociating, you develop a blunted affect, you feel rather than more, less connected with your surroundings. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, again, without being prescriptive about it, I do think a lot of these practices kind of follow this pattern of an inverted U-shaped curve where you do a, a little bit and it's beneficial, then you hit this optimal peak, and then you overtrain, and that which was benefiting you all of a sudden is detrimental. Mm-hmm. And this is anecdotal, I'm just speaking about my own experience, but it's been documented in the varieties of contemplative experience study and elsewhere and is just something to watch out for. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the conditions that you described, it's sometimes hard to get beyond anecdotal experience, but because this is practitioners, teachers are realizing that this is is an actual phenomenon that negatively impacts people's lives that is working against wellness. Um, hopefully it can be more than just anecdotal and there can be more concrete studies done to kind of not entirely scare people away, but just let them know the right dose, as you said. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. This was really interesting. Thank you, Violet. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 